Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Hebrews is a fascinating book, very eloquently written. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. The the theories are, are various. So I'm just have to refer to the writer of Hebrews as the writer, the author. Uh, but whoever it was, we call this the book of Hebrews. This was a letter written to Hebrew people, Hebrew-speaking Jewish people. And that kind of puts the book in the proper context to begin with. Those of you who have read or studied Hebrews will recognize that it's a book that does a significant amount of comparing what used to be with what the writer at that time recognizes is now. In other words, to the Jews, their old Judaic system, the the old law, the old covenant, compared to Jesus Christ, the new priest, the, the new covenant that he brought to us. And what happened to the law. And so the writer deals with this. And it's not really a book that should primarily be considered a a theological work. Although it presents some very interesting facts about Christian theology. It's more a book that overall is supposed to be uh, exhorting and encouraging the people that he's writing to. But in order to get to that full effect of being an encouragement to the people he's writing to, he wants to refer back to the way things used to be and compare it to the way it is now. Now, he did that successfully. The writer of Hebrews did. If we can grasp that, we too should be encouraged to realize how good things are now under the new covenant as opposed to to how things used to be. First of all, there had to be a change come for these Jewish converts. They didn't immediately understand when they received Christ, when they converted to uh, his new religion, they just didn't immediately understand that that was going to completely replace their old Judaistic religion. Why would they understand that? They just thought that Christ was a new element to their religion. And they had to really figure out how to process how does, he, he, how does Christ and his teachings fit in with what we already have. Well, he didn't. He wasn't supposed to. He was supposed to replace all of that. All that would be... Uh, <clears throat> put out of the way, and Christ, the new priesthood, and the new covenant would come into practice. But they didn't understand that. So having been believers in Christ, these people went right back to their synagogues and worshipped. And they didn't change the worship structure of the synagogues. They just went right on worshipping like they had already worshipped their people for centuries. That wasn't what they were supposed to do, but they did. And they, they, they tried to incorporate their new understanding of Christ into their Judaistic religion. They were possessive of their experience, and they didn't realize that this new experience wasn't just for them. As a matter of fact, when it began to become evident that there were people other than Jews that were experiencing Christ, they didn't like that. This is ours. This is all ours. See see how contrary that is to our understanding of the gospel, which is good news. You want to go tell everybody. You want to spread it around. You want everybody to have a piece of this. They didn't understand that at all. They wanted to keep it to themselves. Then Paul comes along, and he successfully muddies the waters 
by specifically reaching out to the Gentiles and telling them the message of Jesus Christ. And the church leaders are taken back by what Paul is doing. They, if, if they have received Christ, they're hoarding him. And Paul goes outside of that mentality and says, I want to go tell the Gentiles about it. The church leaders are perplexed. And some of the other people within the church, the Christian community are really trying to bring Paul to the church leaders on charges. But thank goodness they had some good church leaders because they sat down and they listened carefully to what Paul was saying. And they deliberated and they prayed about it and they thought, well, you know, maybe this is the direction this is going. And they gave Paul to continue, uh, the, the, the freedom to continue to take this gospel to the Gentiles, and they just laid down a, a couple of rules that were s- still a little bit Judaistic in their nature. They just couldn't quite make the complete, the, the complete clean break. But they said, go ahead and preach to them, but be sure that they keep a couple of these little laws and rituals. So Paul was willing to strike a compromise at that point. And in his epistles... Paul deals with some of the adjustments that Gentile converts had to make. And he also dealt with some of the adjustments Jewish converts had to make. Everybody had to make an adjustment to this new religion that came. The Gentiles, naturally, leading a very hedonistic life, they tended to bring some of their hedonistic practices into the church. You can see this in the book of Corinthians where there were people that were, uh, they weren't too concerned about animals that had been sacrificed at the, uh, at the heathen festivals. They would eat them because they had been a part of that all their life. It was no big deal. But there were some others there from the Judaistic background says, well, that's, that's so heathen in its origins. Don't bring that in here. Paul was trying to resolve the differences between the two groups. Gentiles brought a little bit of their background into it, which was kind of rough living sometimes. And Paul had to school them through that and say, you can't be like you used to be. When you get saved, it's no longer that anymore. It's your new creature. And then he had to turn around and deal with the Jews and say, you can't continue to be practicing your Judaism. You've got to lay that aside and get into this. Now, this is what Paul is talking about when he comes to the book of Ephesians and says, here's what Christ came to do. He, he came to give himself a sacrifice to make of two people one new man, to make of the Jews and the Gentiles and take these two groups from these totally diverse backgrounds and weld them together and make one new man. The church. So you come from the super religious and the super hedonistic and you bring them together and you mix them together and you build a church. Isn't that an odd mixture of ingredients to build the body of Christ out of? And Paul, in in one of his writings, it was in Galatians, he talks to the Jews about what it's going to take for them to successfully... uh, incorporate this new Christianity, this new religion into their life. So he goes back to the story of Abraham and Sarah and how Abraham and Sarah had the promise from God that they would, uh, she would give birth to a promised child. And you're familiar with the story. Abraham wanted to hurry the process and push it. So he conspired with Sarah that they would take uh, the handmaid, Hagar, and through her... Abraham would bear a son, and Ishmael was born. And so for those years that Ishmael was growing, before Isaac came along, Abraham was smugly uh, satisfied with his plan. He didn't have a clue when Ishmael was born that he had gotten off track. Here's the promised son. Finally got him. So every day of the child's life, Abraham is satisfied. Well, God gave this promise. He was going to give me a son. Here's my son. And ever, everything is good and we're all happy. Until one day after Ishmael had, had grown uh, considerably, God came along uh, to Abraham and to Sarah and said, All right, Abraham, now I'm ready to give you your son. And this was an oops moment. For Abraham, he realizes, 
I've done something wrong. Who, what's, what's this child? If, if, if this is not the child, so he, he messed up God's plan royally. And we do that a lot of times when we get out ahead of God. We have a, a promise. We, we have a leading from him. But we put our hand to fix it ourselves, to make it happen ourselves, instead of waiting on God. So now, Abraham has been given the promise that Sarah is going to bear a child. What do you do with the other child now that you've invested so much in? And after Isaac is born, and there is conflict between the two families, and Sarah catches Ishmael making fun of Isaac, and the, the, the old the, the mother, the motherly... <laughs> Beast comes out, and she marches over to Abraham and said, Kick that woman and her son out of here. No compassion whatsoever. She's going to protect her son. And essentially, Abraham does. He tells Hagar, take Ishmael, leave, go. You can't stay and dwell in this family. Paul tells that story in brief in Galatians. And he makes the application that the casting out of Hagar and Ishmael represents the casting out of the old because the new has come. He is telling the Jewish Christians in the Galatian churches that their old Judaic system has to be cast out. He saw that as a type that, that foreshadowed the old religion is gone and the new has come. Now, the first thing, as I said, is they had to make changes. The second thing is that those who lived through the time of the change were more deeply impacted by it. And that is... As the book of Hebrews compares the old with the new, uh, and, and the writer emphasizes the vast superiority of the new over the old with its old inherent limitations and its inadequacies, the Hebrew people who were experiencing that change in being brought from being participants in the old into the new, they are the ones that are going to be in the best position to recognize the superiority of the new. There are so many things about the old covenant that the new covenant was so much better. Can you imagine going from a life where the sacrificial system was so deeply ingrained into your religion that you were constantly making sacrifices? Millions of gallons of blood flowed from the altars through the centuries of people making sacrifices. And then all of a sudden, you realize by the authority of God, he says, it's done, it's over, we're not going to do it anymore. There's been one sacrifice that's taken care of it all. It's like you've been set free from bondage. And if these people could successfully realize how broken, how, uh, in, uh, how cumbersome their old religion was, and suddenly to come to this new covenant, they really had the opportunity to have the deepest appreciation for not living their life by that letter of the law and the rituals every day, and they just get up and they're free. They're free from the bondage of their old religion. They could appreciate that. They lived through it. Now, there's those of you here today that have not lived through the changes in technology that we appreciate today. You know, you know, if you, some young people, because they grew up, the earliest recollection they have is digital watches. You can throw them a curve when you say clockwise. It doesn't always make sense. How many of you here today, let's, let's, just, let's just take a, a, a brief stroll down memory lane. Uh, there are some of you that remember driving vehicles that really had no power steering and no power brakes and no power windows and no air conditioning and they didn't even come with seat belts. Older people remember that to start your car on a cold morning, the first thing you had to do is to pump the accelerator. Just pump and pump and pump and pump and pump and pump. 
until we came to the new electronic ones and the old school are still just sitting there pumping it like it does it doesn't it doesn't work like that anymore some of you may be old enough to remember building a fire under your oil crankcase to get the oil thin enough on a cold day that your engine could turn some of you may not remember that. (laughs) Some of you may remember the battery in the car being made out of a a tar on top to where the old-timers would stick a penny down in that tar around the terminals so all the corrosion would be drawn to the penny instead of being on the posts. Do you remember that? Maybe I've misguessed my my audience this morning. (laughs) Probably none of you will remember this, but my dad told me about the first car he and my mother had was an old whippet. Now, some of you don't have a clue what a whippet is, but they had a whippet, and the only way it could climb a steep incline was in reverse. None of the forward gears were powerful enough for that car to go uphill, so you go up backward. It was a common thing in those days. How many of you remember the old black, heavy rotary phones? You better better pack a lunch if you had to dial a long number. And we thought, we thought we had shattered the technological barrier when we could get a telephone in any other color but black. We thought we had shattered the technological barrier when we got a 20-foot coil cord on the hand receiver. That was mobile. So you could park it on your head and walk around the kitchen and talk wherever you go. We who have lived through that marvel at the cell phones we carry. We just marvel at it. We've seen the old. We're fascinated by the new. But the younger generation who has never seen the old take the new for granted. It's just like it hasn't always been like this. No, it hasn't always been like this. Now, I've, I've gone to a little extra length to express to you that those who lived through the change were most fascinated by the new covenant because they had lived through the cumbersome things of the old covenant. We who have grown up only under the new covenant don't have much to compare that back against, so we, we probably are a little naive and take it probably for granted to some occasion. That means that my challenge really today is to help us dig to where we have a greater appreciation for what really is ours today because we didn't get to see the old. How many of you remember TV back when all you could get was ABC, CBS, or NBC? That was it. Now, you might get those on multiple channels because this one was a little snowier than that one. So you always watch ABC over here, because ABC over here was no good. How many of you remember that when you wanted to get a better signal, somebody was appointed to climb the roof? Turn the antenna until somebody hollering out the door says, a little more, a little more, that's too far, go back, go back. Now we watch TV on our cell phones. We, we watch it on things like this. I'm fascinated. I've seen the old. I've seen the new. I'm fascinated. I marvel at this. The first thing that I want to say <clears throat> about what the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews tells us about the superiority of the new comes from the entirety of chapter 7. And I'll just summarize it like this. The new is a better priest who can bring perfection. And we have to be careful of the word perfection. How can God expect us to be perfect? 
Just briefly, I'll take the 11th verse of the 7th chapter. It says, If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come and one in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron? So we focus in on the term perfection. If the perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, Now, I'm not going to assume everybody is up to speed on what a Levitical priesthood, so that may sound like mumble-jumble you don't understand. Well, see, the 12 tribes of Israel, we just talked about Abraham. Abraham bore Isaac. Isaac bore Jacob. Jacob bore 12 sons, and each one of them was their name became the, they became the leader of tribes, 12 tribes. See, one of the tribes was Levi, Reuben and Joseph and and, Esau. so many of these different, uh, uh, Levi was one of the tribes, and it was from the tribe of Levi that all the priests had to come. You had to be born in the right place to have a chance to be a priest. That was called the Levitical priesthood. And they served as priests to the rest of the children of Israel. That's what we mean when we talk about the Levitical priesthood. And the law given to the people that established that priesthood, why was there still need, if you have a Levitical priesthood and you have a law given to the people, why, why do you still need another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, which is that's a reference to Jesus Christ, and not in the order of Aaron? So if the Levitical priesthood could not make people perfect, we have to do something about that. That's not good enough. God recognized it wasn't sufficient. So he said, I'm going to improve on that. And the way he improved on it is through the priesthood of Jesus Christ, who came, and the writer of Hebrews says, he came after the order of Melchizedek. That's another word that has very specific connotations to to people who have been in church for a while, but if you haven't read the Old Testament, now you're lost again. Uh, Melchizedek was a person that, a king of Salem that Abraham paid tithe to. And because we don't know much about Melchizedek, no genealogy, we don't have a, a, a... record of mother, father, or anything else. It became a real convenient example, illustration of Jesus Christ, the Melchizedek priesthood that just came from where? Came from where? Always existed. And so it, in a sense, because from these earlier characters, Melchizedek, Abraham, out of all of those came forth later characters who would become the children of Jacob, the tribe of Levi, the priests. In a sense, Abraham is paying tithe to Melchizedek, who is superior to those that are paying tithe to the Levitical priesthood. So in a sense, Abraham, from whom Levi came, is paying tithe to Melchizedek. Levi is paying tithe to Melchizedek. This is the way the Bible lays it out. I'm not making this up. In a sense, Levi is subordinate to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is the superior priest. Levi submits to him through Abraham. So he proves the Melchizedek line is better. Now, Jesus is a superior priest. He's a superior priest for many reasons. Uh, One of them is he doesn't have to make a sacrifice for himself like the old Levitical priests did. They made sacrifices for you, then they had to go through it for themselves because they were corrupt people too. Jesus didn't have to make a sacrifice for himself. It was all for you. He's a superior priest. He's a superior priest because all the Levites eventually died. But he, Jesus is alive, perpetually alive, and continues to make intercession for us. He's a superior priest. 
He's a superior priest because the old Levitical priesthood couldn't make you perfect. Perfect. But Jesus Christ can make you perfect. Now we have to deal with the issue of perfect because this is a biblical term. The writer again refers to perfection in the 10th chapter when he says, the law is only a shadow of good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Once again, he reiterates in that 10th chapter, they can't do it. Not with all the sacrifices they're making. They were powerless. That was their shortcomings. He says, otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered if one would have made you perfect, if one have been sufficient? Now, what does perfect mean? It means acceptable in God's eyes. Don't try and put your 21st century definition on the word perfect. Understand the sense in which it's being used in this context. In this context, if the Levitical priesthood and their activities as priests and their sacrifices could make you presentable to God, they wouldn't have to keep doing it all the time. But Jesus did it, and now you're presentable to God. That's another reason he's a superior priest. Once and for all, he made that sacrifice. And I'll continue reading. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins, which is the clue that even though they had their sacrifice, they still felt guilty. All they were doing was going in the trust and the hope that because God told us we had to do this, if we do this, he won't slay us. But they still felt guilty. They did it, but they didn't feel the washing away of the sins. They didn't feel the relief from the condemnation. The guilt was still there. None of that was washed away. But those animal sacrifices are annual reminders of our sins. That's all they were. Every time you made an animal sacrifice, you just repeated reminded how disgusting you were. How unqualified you were for the pleasure of God. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away your sins, is what he says in the third verse. And then he makes another reference to perfect in the 12th chapter when he talks about you used to have to go to Mount Sinai, and it was a horrible, intimidating place in the presence of God up there. Nobody wanted to approach Sinai, but he says it's so much better now because you don't have to go to Sinai. You don't have to be afraid of God. There's not this gloom and the doom and the swirling storms and the fire on the mountain and things to be afraid of that Moses' eyes exceedingly fear and quake. He says, but you've come to Mount Zion. You haven't come to Mount Sinai. How would you have to be afraid? You've come to Mount Zion. It's a warm place. It's a welcome place. Come on in. You've come to the new Jerusalem. You haven't come to the old Jerusalem that decays and it's besieged by armies from century to century and nobody knows who controls it. You haven't come to the war-torn Jerusalem. You've come to the new Jerusalem. You've come to the church of the firstborn. You've come to those who have been made perfect is what he says in that passage. The spirits of those who have been made perfect acceptable in God's eyes. You've got this perfect priest so much better than the old Levitical priesthood. For those who live through that, for those who are frustrated with, the, with no relief from their guilt, and suddenly they come to Jesus Christ and they realize that the price has been paid, the work has been done, they are free, they are no longer counted guilty for their sins, but their guilt has been remitted. That had to be... Uh, a revolutionary experience in the life. For us, we just grew up saying, well, isn't that the way it's supposed to be? You know, I'm excited about it, but isn't that the way it's always... It hasn't always been like that. You didn't live under that frustrating old system. That's the reason if you know more about it, the more you should be today awed by what God did for us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Number two. This is from the 8th chapter of Hebrews, and I summarize it like this. A better covenant that makes God's blessings accessible to all. And I choose to read in the 7th verse. If there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. 
But God found fault with the people. And he said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. Now think about that. A covenant, a contract, an agreement. There are terms and conditions established in this. And God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. It's a revelation to these people. The old one's not working. And one of these days, God promises them, I'm going, make, I'm going to make a new one. Because the old one, the problem with the old one is there are conditions for you to be blessed by me. And you people keep dropping the ball. The covenant's no good because part, half of the people of the two-party contract, one half, they're failing. God never did fail. He was ready to bless but they kept failing. So he says, this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I'll write them in their hearts. All right, now already you see the conditions of the new covenant compared to the old is the old covenant had written laws. And God says, here's what I'm going to do in the new covenant. I'm not going to have any more of these written laws. I'm going to write it in your heart, and I'm going to write it in your mind. Now, I mentioned last Sunday in my sermon that some people are hung up. Where does the Bible say? People, you, you've got to, if you hear anybody saying that, you've got to understand, they've got to get out of that mentality. God said there was a time when I tried to put down in minute detail, do this, don't do that, do this, and he said, I, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to write a new covenant. Because there were so many rules and so many regulations and people were breaking them. And the Bible tells us if, if you break a covenant in, in the law in one point, you're guilty of them all. So God says, I'm going to write a new covenant. And this time I'm going to write it on your heart and your mind. Now, if your heart and your mind are not in the right condition, it's going to be a faulty covenant again. Your heart and your mind have to be open to what God is writing on your heart. And in your mind. And you can't just resort to getting away with your misconduct by saying on a technicality, well, the Bible doesn't really say. What's the Holy Spirit saying to you? What's in your heart? What's in your mind? What is He trying to speak to you? And we must be tender to Him every day for this covenant to be successful for us and responsive to what the Holy Spirit is saying. And unfortunately, there are people that are trying to kill the voice of the Holy Spirit because they don't like that past every day in their life. They don't like that feeling of somebody watching over their shoulder 24-7. So they learn to tune the Holy Spirit out. And when you do, you've lost all connection with moral reality. How in the world are you going to know if you have quenched the voice of the Holy Spirit how to be guided and led by Him? It's in your heart. It's in your mind. That's the new covenant that God planned on writing. That's what He did write. That's what we're under. See, the law was inflexible. It didn't make allowances. The law was powerless to redeem because they still felt guilty. And Paul said in the 8th chapter of Romans, said, because through Jesus Christ the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, it could not release you from the guilt of sin and death. What the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. That's how much better the new is than the old. The new covenant is better because... First of all, it relies on God's grace and Christ's perfection and not on your behavior. In the old covenant, they failed. They broke the law. They sinned. And God said, the old covenant's no good because you people are no good. Therefore, I'm going to make a new covenant 
and my son will be the one to seal the covenant. He will take the sins upon himself, be nailed to the cross, then he'll defeat death and he'll rise again and he'll live forevermore. And because he does that, if you put your trust in him, you will be considered righteous. So you see, what we call, used to be the law and the works and people were guilty because of what they had done. Now you're living under something that is called grace. Grace, greater than every sin you've ever committed. Grace that says it doesn't require to be perfect, only to be humble, only to do your best to be obedient to God. But if you fail, this is not the old covenant where one failure means you failed in everything. This is not the old covenant where you are worthy of death and stoning if you broke those laws. This is the new covenant. And grace that is there for you in your failures. That because Jesus Christ did not fail, the covenant, the new covenant is so far superior to the old because he was obedient. He was perfect. Put your trust in him. The new covenant is better because it's simple. Note that all the intricate laws and statutes are swept away. This is the streamlined replacement to the old clunky version. God will write in his hearts and their minds, uh, his laws on their heart, in, their heart, in their minds and on their hearts. And no one, the Bible says, will have to tell each other about the Lord because they will already know him. Now, that one I'm going to have to probably <clears throat> unpack for you a little bit. Not that I think you're stupid by any means. But it's one of the trickier passages that many people read that and say, no, wait a minute. God says he's going to create a new covenant. He's going to write it on our hearts and in our minds. And nobody will have to tell anybody else about the Lord. And we're kind of stumped at that point. Well, isn't Christianity all about telling somebody else about the Lord? Yes, it is. But here's the difference. In the old covenant... You were born into the people of God. And do you remember in the Old Testament what the people of God were to do in behalf of their children? Teach them. Put it on the doorposts. When they go to bed, when they get up, when they leave, when they come, teach these statutes unto them. Teach them. Because being born into Israel did not make you an immediate theologian. It didn't guarantee you knew who the Lord was. You were born without knowledge of the Lord. You had to be taught the knowledge of the Lord. If God's people was all by birth, natural birth, God said, I'm going to change that. I've got too many people who belong to Israel by natural birth who really do not honor me. Now, he said, I'm going to change the rules. The only people who belong to me now are the people who know me first. Then join. And so therefore what he's doing is comparing the old where you had to tell people you've been born as a Jew and as a Jew you need to know who Jehovah is and I hope you get it right and do better than the rest of us. Now God says people who come to him because the only reason they can come is because they know of him and join. He said those are the ones you don't have to teach each other who the Lord is because everybody who belongs is here because they know who I am. It's the total opposite of the way it used to be. That's what Christianity is all about. That's why our covenant is so far superior to the old. We don't need to carry a book of rules around and reference this guide to help decide whether the thing we're about to partake in is morally legal, permissible or not. We have with us in our heart and in our mind the understanding of right and wrong. We have the Holy Spirit to guide us. We have him whenever we begin to embark on something that's not wrong, bringing up that little awareness, that, that check in our spirit where God says, don't do that. 
So we don't have to have a book of rules and regulations. We've got this direct contact. People are always trying to streamline things. We've seen streamlining in practical life where, you know, we went from dealing with cash uh, to writing checks to swiping cards to now cards that can just be scanned to the technology now thinking about somehow embedding something in you that you can just be scanned and your and your bank account will be debited for a, whatever the purchase price is because they're, they're constantly streamlining. Let's make this easier. Well, God was, God was the big granddaddy of streamlining. Rather than going with this big cumbersome book of rules and regulations, he streamlined a long time ago. He said, I'm going to embed this in you so that you don't have to read and find out if it's right or wrong. You're going to have immediate feedback right now. I'm going to embed the Holy Spirit in you, and you are going to know immediately, right or wrong. Now it's up to you to listen to the Holy Spirit and to do right. Jesus swept away. All of those old rules and regulations. And somebody came to him and said, which one is the greatest commandment? And you have to understand, they had, they had hundreds of laws. They, you had the Ten Commandments, but the Jews got so carried away with commandments, they kept writing them. And so you had God's laws, and then you had all these others that they attached onto it because they thought they could improve on what God did. So they they had hundreds. And when they came to Jesus and they asked this question, said, which one is the greatest? It was really a very prideful question. They were asking Jesus, of all these laws that we wrote and added to it, which one's your favorite one that we did? And Jesus, at that point, swept them all away. He said, the greatest commandment, love God with everything. If there's any other commandment next to that one. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, you can hang everything else you've got. All the laws, all the prophets. And people, when you think about it, that is remarkably efficient. Superbly simple. As you come to church and say, I just wish I could learn what I ought to do and what I ought not to do. And I just, I just, I just can't grasp it all. I, I'm trying to devour it all. We've got to attend all the Bible studies we can attend. Let me give you a shortcut, okay? If you love God with all of your heart, that takes care of all the things you should not do. If you're doing other things that doesn't please the Lord, you're not loving God with all your heart. You're failing in the basic commandment. And the other one that's kind of the cleanup commandment. If there's anything else you're confused about that you don't understand how the first one covers because you think maybe you can smite your neighbor because God's mad at them just like you are. God says if there's any other that you have any misunderstanding on trying to understand, first of all, love God with everything within you. And then just to kind of tighten everything up, love your neighbor like you love yourself. And if you can live by those two, you will grow in God. You will please Him. What else do you need? The final thing is, chapter 9, a better sacrifice. It says in the 13th verse, The blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Outwardly, significant term. How much more? And I, I love the how much more. This is, this is such a powerful contrast. If the blood of bulls and goats, the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on people, managed to make them ceremonially clean on the outside. That's all. There's no inward cleansing. Just externally, they were ceremonially clean. How much more will the blood of Jesus Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our conscience from the acts that lead to death 
Everybody say, lead to death. The things that are leading to death are the things that we need to quit doing. Why are we killing ourselves? And it says that Jesus' blood, though the sacrifices of the old things could make you ceremonially clean, the blood of Jesus can make you pure within. And it can help you to steer away from those things that otherwise are killing you. They lead to death. So that we may serve the living God. One sacrifice, completely sufficient. And the cleansing that Jesus gives is not just this ceremonial cleansing. The blood of Jesus goes much deeper than a ceremonial cleansing. It cleanses our conscience from those things that eventually bring death upon us. And with our moral bearings then being straightened out through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we can effectively serve the living God. See, that's the problem with other religions today. None of them, except Christianity, have the provision for making us clean and righteous before the Lord. None of them have the power to properly align our conscience and help us clearly distinguish the acts of death from the acts of life. I see young people who are on a fast track to hell. They bought into the lies this world has fed them, and they've sold out their purity at bargain basement prices. They trade their innocence for carnal knowledge, and they participate in things that are literally killing them. A few years ago, the uh, golfing phenomenon, Tiger Wood, he had a personal meltdown. And uh, a... uh, altercation with his then wife he was went into a rage he was smashing her new car with his golf club lost his marriage became publicly humiliated and Britt Hume the uh, well-known news commentator journalist having witnessed this meltdown in Tiger's life, had made the comment, Tiger needs Christianity. He needs Jesus. Britt Hume came under a heavy fire for suggesting that Tiger needed Jesus. Tiger responded to that. He said, I don't need Christianity. I have my own religion. It's Buddhism from his mother. He said, I have my religion. My faith is strong enough for me. See, that's the problem. People think all you need is a religion. Go to the religion buffet and look them over and pick one you like. And it's good enough for you. But that's not the case. Christianity, if it's defined by God and not by its adherents, Christianity, followers of Christ, what Christ has provided for us, offers things that no other religion in the world can emulate, can come close to, can duplicate. There's no rivals whatsoever. You see, the problem is, Man can't fix himself. He's guilty before God and condemned to die in rebellion. You can't fix yourself. Men, women, young men, young ladies, you can't fix yourself. And the fact of the matter is, in Jesus Christ, you have to understand there is no salvation in any other name. You can't find pleasure in God. You can't find His pleasure on your life in any other way except through Jesus Christ. The only name under heaven whereby we might be saved. And Buddha, before he died, this Buddhist religion that Tiger said his his faith is good enough, it's sufficient for him. Buddha, before he died, said this. He said, behold, O monks, this is my last advice to you. All component things in the world are changeable. They are not lasting. 
Work hard to gain your own salvation. Now, if, if you wonder what that means, Buddhism is a non-theistic theistic religion. Not reaching out to God. It's within yourself. Find your own salvation. It's within yourself. They teach you, you should not rely on anything external or anything transcendent to solve your problems. You made the mess, you cleaned it up. That's Buddhism. I know it's oversimplistic, but that basically is, is true to what Buddhism is. You fix yourself. And Buddha's last words is, things are changing in the world. Find your own salvation. And for a person like Tiger or anybody else that says, I don't need Christianity because I've got a religion. We're not talking about a religion. We're talking about somebody that can wash your sins in the blood that was shed, that can declare you clean and righteous before God, that everything you did from this day previous is gone, it's over, it's done, it's forgiven, it's through, and you have been given a new lease on life, and Buddha didn't have anything that accomplished that, and uh, Islam doesn't have anything that accomplishes that, Hinduism doesn't have anything that accomplishes that, that nobody, nobody can bring you into right relationship with God except Jesus Christ, it's it. And I know that we're living in a day and age where people don't like to hear that because it makes it sound like somehow Christianity is superior to all other religions. It is because, you see, what I said was just before Buddha died, he's dead. He does not live. But Jesus Christ died once for all, but on the third day he rose again. And that's why it is hands down, without question, undebatably greater than any other religion in the world because he lives And he's ever interceding before the Lord for you and I. And those are just a few of the things that we can say. Why the new is so much better than the old. So I started off by asking you, do you really appreciate your salvation? Do you really appreciate Jesus Christ? You appreciate what God's done for you? Do you appreciate the new like those who actually live through the change. And if we reflect on this today, I hope we can say I have a greater appreciation, God, for what you have blessed us with. It's nothing like it used to be, but how grand it is and how much we love him. Worship team, would you come?